Uh, good afternoon. Oh, man, I thought speaking a little bit earlier, people might be a little bit more awake, but apparently not. We started out nearly two months ago now, um, peering through the windows of the royal court of Xerxes in Susa, in ancient Persia. And what we witnessed was a feast of immense proportions designed to show off the wealth and the grandeur and the success of King Xerxes. And now as we near the end of the book of Esther, two months on, we see another celebration taking place. Feasting and joy is once again the order of the day. But this time it's not to boost the ego of a fragile king. But this is the overflow of expression and emotion from a people who have been saved from death and destruction. As we look at Esther chapter 9, I want to ask three questions. And I think there are three questions that may have chimed with us as we've read through this book, and specifically as Jai's just read that chapter to us. Why is the book of Esther so important? What are the ingredients of a God-centered celebration? And then thirdly, should we celebrate purely? Why is the book of Esther so important? There are two answers to that question. And the first one is because of Purim. Because of this festival that the Jews are meant to keep. The second answer is because of Jesus. The first answer, because of Purim, is chronologically the first answer. The events that take place here in the latter half of chapter 9 of the book of Esther establish the Jewish annual festival of, of Purim. In 10 days' time, Jewish people across the globe will stop their normal routines on Wednesday the 16th of March, the equivalent of the 14th day of Adar in the Hebrew calendar. And at sundown on that Wednesday, the Jewish people will celebrate. And their celebrations will go right through to the end of the next day. And they will start with a reading of the whole Megillah, or as we would call it, the book of Esther. And as the book is read and the story is told, those that are present will join in with a bit of audience participation. Every time the name Haman is mentioned, those that are listening are supposed to shake their graggers. Now, if that doesn't make any sense to you, think noisemakers. Think a small child. Every time Haman is mentioned. Or they can stamp their feet. And the idea is that as Haman is mentioned, you drown him out. You eradicate him from the story. Him and his evil name. People will be dressed up, sometimes in fine clothes. Again, taking up part of the story, as we saw uh, Mordecai dressed up in the king's clothing. There might even be plays reenacting part of the story with a bit of comedic effect. Lots of songs, lots of food, lots of wine. In fact, tradition tells it that you're supposed to drink so much wine that you can't tell the difference between people saying, blessed is Mordecai and cursed be Haman. 
I'm not recommending it, but it's part of the tradition. One Jewish website describing what Purim is and when to celebrate says this, Purim celebrated on the 14th of Adar is the most fun-filled, action-packed day of the Jewish year. And the book of Esther explains for a future generation of Jewish people why they celebrate this day. It gives them the backstory, the incredible reversal from those that were due for destruction who instead destroy the aggressors. It tells them that even in the worst of circumstances, far from home, that God holds his people fast and he brings them to rest and to rejoicing and to relief. And we're going to spend a bit of time digging into this festival is as established here, this Purim celebration. But I said there were two answers to that question. Why is the book of Esther so important? And we don't want to just stop with Purim. For the book of Esther is not just a, a Jewish book. It's a Christian book. The book of Esther, along with all of the Old Testament, points forwards to Jesus, to the coming of God himself into our world. And so the book of Esther is important because it tells us about Jesus. It's giving us information about why Jesus needed to come. It's giving us anticipation for when he does come. It's teaching us about how we should understand what Jesus does and what Jesus says in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. It's teaching us something of how to respond to Jesus. So when we read the book of Esther, and when we talk about it, and when we preach from it, it would be incomplete to not talk about Jesus. Let alone not talk about the gods who isn't mentioned. Jesus is the great culmination and focal point of all the quests and the questions that the earlier parts of the Bible describe to us and deliver to us and cause us, stir up within us. It's about Jesus. But let's stop and dig in to Purim. But have that question in the back of your mind. How does this point us to Jesus? How does this teach us about how we respond to Jesus? We're going to come back to it. But secondly, we're going to ask the question, what are the key ingredients for a God-centered celebration? And to answer this, I want us to dig into some of the, the key information in this text that Jai has read to us. And to notice some of the particulars that the author mentions. We're going to try and work out what the recipe is for a festival that God's people are to celebrate. Imagine for a second you've just been served up a delicious cake. It's, oh, it's so scrumptious, you wish you'd had a bigger slice, you're hoping that there'll be more for a second slice. And you say, what's the recipe? I want to go home and make this. But nobody's got the recipe. And instead, strewn across the kitchen countertop 
are all sorts of different ingredients, implements, measuring jugs, discarded pans. And what we're going to do is look at all that mess, all those little key indicators, and try and put together the true, the heart of a God-centered celebration. So, what are the key ingredients? Firstly, it's based on history. Look down at verse 23 and 20, down to 26, in the middle of that section that Jai read to us. What we get here is a summing up of the story. If you've been here most weeks, this will just all seem very familiar. Almost to the point of saying, why is he telling us this again? So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they'd begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his son should be impaled on poles. It's based on history. This actually happens. We could easily say there's no need for him to retell us what we've just read, what we've just heard. But the author of Esther wants us to know the certainty of these events. And as he's describing that, he's, we give the, he gives us the reason. He or she gives us the reason for the name of the festival. It recalls the casting of lots, the throwing of the dice to decide on which day the Jews would be exterminated. And when God turns it all around, the date which became the death date for all those who are enemies of the Jews, the date of deliverance. Purim. The people of God could say with King David in Psalm 16, Lords, you have assigned me my portion, man, my cup. You have made my lot secure. This happened these events took place some scholars some commentators go well we're not actually sure this happened these events was there really a jewish queen of the greatest empire on the earth at the time but how foolish would it be to celebrate a myth we understand there's a place for myths that teaches truths fables Stories with morals, but, but to celebrate and to bring yourself to worship off the back of something that never happened, that's surely foolishness. True events are the foundation for this celebration. But they're not just true events out there somewhere. We find our second ingredient is this. This celebration is based on personal experience. Look down again at 26, verse 26. Because of everything written in this letter, the one that is sent to the people, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom. There would have been thousands, tens of thousands 
of individual accounts of what took place in the Persian Empire for the Jewish people at that time. Every single Jew would have had a story, a story of receiving that first edict from the king, that the Jews, it was permissible and encouraged that they be destroyed. And every single man and woman would have remembered the moment when they first heard the news that within the year, their enemies would be allowed to destroy them. Those that hated them. Listen again to how that edict is described in chapter 3. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Every single man, woman, child of the Jewish nation scattered throughout the empire would remember when they heard that news. We could think in our time imagine what it would be like we could think of somebody called Reuben who's in Rotherham who knows that his neighbor is out to get him and now the taunts have increased throughout the year as the events have become closer and closer he's been mocked and scorned or we could think of Deborah who's in Doncaster who sees the way that her children are now treated in school by others Maybe even by the teachers because they're a Jew and their day is coming. We could think of countless stories of these people who have known that their time is up. That their enemies will succeed because it's been stamped by the king. And every one of them has known the reality of this great reversal, as God has worked in extraordinary ways to rescue his people. And maybe they've heard the story of one of their own, Esther, the girl who had become a queen, who had put her life on the line for her people. And maybe they'd heard about Mordecai, Every one of them had a personal connection to these events in their town with their enemies who they could name and God had saved them. It's a personal experience. But it's not just a personal celebration. It's a communal celebration. We know and we can imagine that these celebrations take place throughout the entire empire. The Jews had got relief from their enemies and then they rested and feasted. We can go back just a little bit before where Jai started reading. Look at chapter 9 verse 16. 
Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and got relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but, this did not, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Throughout the provinces, the people gathered to defend themselves and then to feast. This is not a one-person thing, but this is an all-the-people thing. But notice, too, that when they celebrate, their celebrations include being good to one another. Their celebration was designed to do good to other people. We see in verse 19 that they give presents to each other. And then when Mordecai formalizes this celebration, it's not just doing good to each other, but it's also, in verse 22, giving gifts to the poor. There's an outward-looking otherness about this celebration. And so it arises from personal experience, but it's corporately celebrated. It's a community celebration that looks out for the established relationships, but also for those who are weak and vulnerable and in need. This is not to be a time when some can celebrate and others go, well, I wish I could, but I can't afford to. No, all of God's people are to be included in this celebration. Notice next that it's a joyful celebration. It's really interesting to note the day they are are to remember. The day of celebration. It's not the day of the battle. It's not the 13th day. The day when the original edict went out and then, then the second edict where the Jews could defend themselves against their enemy and when the victory was won. It's not that day that's remembered. No, it's the 14th and the 15th. It's the days that the people feasted. It's the day that the people enjoyed the relief that God had brought to them. It's the day that they partied. As Mordecai sends this out, that's what people remember. It was the day when we all sat round and we laughed and we sang and we smiled and we couldn't stop smiling. I think Purim was designed to remember that moment when they woke up the next day and all the stresses and the burdens of most of the previous year where they had lived in fear had gone away. And maybe for the first time in a long time, they'd slept peacefully and they'd woken up refreshed. And this festival, this celebration was to remember that and then to remember the party that followed. Look at how often in just a few short verses joy is mentioned. Chapter, 17, uh, sorry, chapter 9, verse 17, it was a day of feasting and joy. Chapter uh, Verse 18, made it a day of feasting and joy. Verse 19, as a day of joy and feasting. Again and again and again, verse 21, twice in verse 22. And then celebration, 
this call to celebrate. Verse 23 and verse 28. And this joy springs out from the truth of what God has done for them. It's why it's so important that we note that these events actually happened. Because they surely knew him. Surely their joy sprung from the reality of their experiences. From the deepest, darkest pit of despair. To joy and freedom and life. That note of hope that our future does not end on the 13th day of the month of Adar. Actually, our future will go far beyond. Let's add in one more ingredient. This is a celebration that it's about confirming what had happened and not conforming people to something to do. You can imagine that as the days and the years go by, the question will continue to be asked, why do we celebrate Purim amongst Jewish families, those living in exile? And as the years go by, as the people who were there pass away, what, why do we do this? It's a childlike question, isn't it? Why do we go to church? Why are we doing this today? Maybe some of your kids have been asking, why are we going out at the start of the service? That's not usually what happens. And one answer might be, well, we do Purim because we were told to. Look, Mordecai wrote to all of us. Look down at verse 20 and 21. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far that they should celebrate annually the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar. Or verse 28. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. But I wonder... And maybe we can speculate to say, that's not enough. Maybe you know the reality that you don't just do what you're told to do. We want to know why. We want to know the purpose and the meaning. We want to be part of it. You see, just being told to discounts the the personal experience and the personal reality of what's taken place and what we find here is that Purim was celebrated before it was ever initiated so we go back to verses 17 and 18 and after the events that took place we find a people who are feasting and joyful right across the empire. This is what they'd experienced. And this is how they'd responded. Naturally. Mordecai and Esther together institute what was intuitive to the Jewish people. They say, you have rejoiced. So remember to rejoice in what God has done for you. 
You see, there is a natural response to the saving work of God. Worked amidst much oppression. Worked through weakness. For the good of his chosen and called people. And the natural response is to rejoice when God saves. There is a happiness that springs up in God's people because of what he has done. In Persia. In this Persian empire. And so when Mordecai writes to them, he's not telling them to do something that is alien to them. He's saying, you've begun this and we need to continue this. I think it's striking that in the story of Esther, a story that exposes the challenges and calamities and choices of living as one of God's people in a society and a culture and an empire that is decidedly not for God, decidedly not aligning with God's kingship and God's values and God's ways, that Mordecai says, we need this. We need to stop every year and remember what, God has done. Does Mordecai I suspect that the people will forget what has happened? And they will forget to feast. That they will drift into what's called assimilation. That over time, they'll begin to become more and more like those around them. I suspect Mordecai I does think that. Because I suspect that he looks at himself and thinks, that's exactly what I'm like. I'm the sort of person that doubts that God is in control, that doubts that God can work in small and weak people, that doubts that God is good enough or big enough I'm the sort of person that would tell my cousin, somebody who I brought up, to not admit that she's one of God's people. And I suspect Mordecai thinks, I need to be reminded to rejoice in what God has done. And so he institutes what is intuitive. He makes it an annual reminder that overflows from the personal and communal experience of the people. It's a formalizing of the proper response of God's people to what God has done. And it's marked by overwhelming joy. There seems to be a hint that also there was a remembrance of the, the fasting that had taken place just towards the end of, of chapter 9. But overwhelmingly, this is a joyous occasion. Remember that God's good. Remember what is true. Let me answer our question with this. What does a God-centered celebration look like? It is a personal and communal, joyful and hopeful celebration of what God has done in history that encourages us to live faithfully in the present, even as we look to the future. 
What does a God-centered celebration look like? A personal and communal, joyful and hopeful celebration of what God has done in history that encourages us to live faithfully in the present as we look to the future. So let's ask our third question. Should we celebrate Purim this week or in 10 days' time? Well, remember our first question, why is the book of Esther so important? Important to Jewish people, that seems obvious. This is what God did for us. That's why we're still here. But our second answer was that the book of Esther points us to Jesus. And this great celebration of the saving of God's people from annihilation does indeed call us, lead us to look for a greater fulfillment, a greater salvation, a greater celebration, a bigger party, even than that that is described here. And as Fenton pointed out to us last week, there is a more important theme running through this Esther story than just the saving of those Jewish individuals at that point in history, in the Persian Empire. The fulfillment of all God's promises across the ages that through this nation, one family that became a nation, that this group would produce an heir, a seed, who would grow and bless the whole world. The Jews were saved for their good. But also, and dare we say it, more importantly, they were saved so that God could enact the key moment in history. That he could play the winning hand through a Jewish man born hundreds of years later in Bethlehem. Jesus. And Esther points us forward to a greater celebration. Should we celebrate Purim? We should be delighted. And we should be thankful for God's saving work in Persia. Through his opposition to this man Haman. Through the wisdom and courage of Esther and Mordecai. Through the weakness of this king. But all of that is far more important because through it God brought about a greater salvation. A salvation not just of the physical lives of one people group in one moment, but the complete and utter salvation of body, soul, spirit and mind of people from all people groups across every generation of human history. A salvation that extends beyond people to the renewal of the entire cosmos. The promise that through him all things would be made new. And all the sad things that we see in our world, all the decay that God is bringing about, a renewal, a remaking, a new creation. Purim and Esther help us to understand the work and worth of Jesus. And then they instruct us in how to respond. A personal 
and communal, joyful and hopeful celebration of what God has done in history that encourages us to live faithfully in the present as we look to the future. It points us forward to what Jesus did in his life and his death and then his resurrection. And Jesus gave his followers a meal to celebrate, to remember what he was doing for them and has done for all who believe in him in dying for them. Jesus is the great deliverer from sin, death, and hell. And he gives us and institutes a celebration for his followers to take part in, to remember the historical event that there really was a man called Jesus who walked in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, who interacted with people, who showed compassion, who enacted miracles who taught the true wisdom of God and showed us the way to life and life in all its fullness. And Jesus gives us this meal that is personal. It calls us to remember that Jesus died not just for sin generally, not just for brokenness and wicked generally, but Jesus died for me. Jesus died for the things that I have done wrong. For the good that I have failed to do. That Jesus knows me personally and died for me. He bore my sins on the cross. This is, per- this is communal. We gather together as his people. To encourage and to comfort one another. Confessing sin to each other where we have failed each other. And making sure that we all come equally. Read 1 Corinthians 11 and see that concern for those that are less well off. See the echo of Esther chapter 9. Then we come with great joy. For we, as we remember Christ's work, we are reminded that despite our failures, despite our compromise... God has still worked for our good. We are reminded that God is for us. And as we come, we come to be equipped and reminded in the sure knowledge that God is working in a land like ours where we as Christians are aliens and strangers. We're not in charge. We don't make decisions. We don't live in a land where Christianity is promoted and delighted in, where people seek to follow Jesus. We are, as 1 Peter says, aliens and strangers. Called to live out following Jesus. And so we come to celebrate what Jesus has given us. This institution of a meal. Bread and wine. To be reminded of what God has done. But also to be reminded of what God will ultimately do.
God has saved. And God will save to the uttermost. God will transform us. God will win. And so that's what we're going to do this afternoon. We are going to come and take part in a celebration. Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, the day before his death, sat down with his followers and said, here is something that you can do and you will do, you must do, to remember what I have done for you. And he gives it to bring hope and joy. And they don't see it immediately. And maybe we don't see it immediately. But they're going to see Jesus and be equipped and empowered to live for him in a foreign land. Knowing, as Jesus says, that we will do this until Christ will return. There will come a day where we no longer need to remember. For we will be with Jesus. Our faith will be sight.